0: After 20 years, I don't judge anymore. So, I know this person sitting in front of me, be it a soldier, be it an army officer, a militia commander, I know that this person did commit serious crimes, atrocities, but I can't sit and judge that person and say, shame
1: on you, how did you do that?
0: It's better for me to try to understand.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Mediator studio. I'm your host, Adam Cooper. I'm here at the Oslo Forum, where mediators and other conflict actors from around the world have come to talk peace. And with me is Haith Abdul-Ahad, who trained as an architect and began writing for The Guardian newspaper in April 2003, soon after the US-led coalition forces took control of Baghdad. He's reported across the region for the past 20 years, including in Iraq, Syria, Libya, Yemen and Afghanistan. Okay, welcome to the Mediator studio. Thank you. We're here talking about conflict mediation, efforts to try to find peace. What do you think the people that you interview on the ground in these countries would think about this concept?
0: Well almost nearly 20 years of covering conflicts, you realize that the conflicts are actually based on day-to-day mediations. The people on the grounds, the victims, the victimizers, the soldiers, the fighters, the militiamen, and the people who are living around them, they have to live in constant mediation. And in a place like Iraq, for example, when the sectarian war was raging, the split in the city is not a clear cut between, say, Sunnis or Shia or whatever, But you always have these grey zone areas in which for a Sunni to cross to the other side, he needs someone to come and facilitate that process. So that's all mediation. So on a local level, you have a constant mediation happening, taking place, because conflicts are not only about fighting and wars and all these things. Then on the larger scale, there is this mediation of the international community, the UN. That is so alien idea to the people on the ground. In the context of Afghanistan, for example, when the Taliban took over power, this takeover of power did not happen by military might, by attacking military bases. The victory of the Taliban was a victory of mediation, was a victory of convincing the other that their cause has lost.
1: And these two conceptions of mediation that you draw out, the sort of international version of it happening at a high political level, and then the daily lived reality ordinary people just trying to find a way forward to exist safely. Do you think that sometimes our world is at risk of downplaying the importance of what happens locally to the privilege of what happens internationally?
0: I mean, personally, I think as a someone who covers conflict and who grew up in conflict, I'm from Iraq. So my first memory when I was during the Iran-Iraq war, this long war of eight years of thousands, tens of thousands of Iraqis and Iranians dying in these futile attacks in, in the marshes in the south. And there was this process of mediation taking place through the UN. And you hear the news about a UN delegation, a meeting in Geneva, and as an Iraqi, and I'm sure my Iranians on the other side of the border, our hopes would go towards this mediation. Just kind of have a deal. I mean, why can't you just have a deal and end the war, this meaningless war? But that is something you can't control. That is way beyond you. What you can control as a citizen of a city, of a conflict, is the local mediation, is having a local ceasefire. And I'm a a very, very big believer in local ceasefires. Because sometimes, let's take Yemen, for example, the tribal networks is very strong. And they've always been talking to each other across the fault lines. So there in Yemen, it's much easier to have a locally uh, negotiated uh, ceasefire, let's say, or a humanitarian agreement, than wait for the whole conflict to be sorted out, which may take a decade or two in mm. cases. Sometimes.
1: And have there been people that you've met in the course of your coverage? Let's take Yemen as an example, where when people think about mediation, they think primarily of the UN-led process. But what you're talking about is something very different. In other words, are there sort of unsung heroes who you've met and you thought, gosh, if only the world knew more about what this incredible person was doing in this town or village? Absolutely.
0: I mean, I have two people kind of straight come to my mind, which is one in Yemen and one in Afghanistan. So in Afghanistan during the civil war in the 90s after the Soviet left and for the Taliban took over. For three four years, the country splinters amongst dozens of militias. And when we say a militia, it's, it could be a bunch of guys controlling a road, controlling a checkpoint. So you need to negotiate all these roadblocks to deliver A, say, from A to Z. And to go through all these checkpoints, you need someone who can talk to these different commanders. And it's, again, a continuous process of negotiations. I give you this, you allow the medicine to go to this person. And and that's very important. And the same thing happened in Yemen. And again, I know a tribal elder who was doing these negotiations. Then, of course, women in conflict, they are constantly doing these negotiations. while the men are fighting. In Baghdad, for example, it was the women who were going crossing the front lines to bring groceries, to receive salaries, to take a child to a hospital. So these civil uh, layers of negotiations are even more important than, say, a UN delegation. The local guys can achieve a lot.
1: You know, there's a lot of rhetoric in our field about what they call multi-track processes, that we have to support local efforts like this while we work at an international level, and then regionally to deal with the foreign backers of a war. What's the reality of what you see? Because I think it it seems that these are things which are happening in parallel, but are not necessarily joined up, or perhaps not even relevant to each other.
0: I mean, if you allow me to say, and I'm an outsider, so to the world of mediation, I mean, I think, from my perspective, mediation is a process of failure. So you would see someone who was a special representative for Afghanistan, then going to become... For another country, then another country. And of course, in the process, he or she, they will fail for decades in solving conflict. But the single success they can achieve, say a ceasefire here and another, that is very big. So I am sure of all the efforts of negotiations and mediations, probably 99% fail and they are futile. But this 1% is very good and achieve things on the ground. Again, these big words, this multi track negotiations process are important, of course, because you do need the UN to, to intervene. However, with what we're seeing now with this paralysed Security Council, it gives more credence to have local approaches to these conflicts.
1: Yes. You mentioned women on the front line just now. Is there an example which comes to mind when you think about that incredibly important role in negotiating arrangements locally?
0: In one neighborhood in, in a village south of Baghdad, which was basically under siege by the militias from everywhere, it's the women who were allowed at one point of the civil war to come out of the neighborhood, to go to the next neighborhood. Because while men are fighting, and while men are creating these ideologies, these fault lines, the people who live in the community, women, old men, children, everyone, they don't even care about this whole big ideological differences, these big Sunni-Shia fault line divides. The reality is more important. How do I get grocery to my children? How do I go to the bakery, get bread, and come back without being killed or assassinated? And how do we negotiate these alleyways away from snipers where the, the two communities can meet, trade, congregate, and come back and separate? So this is the level of mediation that I think is crucial. And I've seen it in Aleppo, I've seen it in Baghdad, I've seen it in Afghanistan, and in Yemen, of course.
1: You mentioned Yemen, which is something that's being discussed here at the OZO Forum. Now, I don't want you to reveal anything from discussions which take place under Chatham House rules, but because it's a war that you studied and covered in depth, and and it's one where the suffering goes on, on really an enormous scale, are there things which make you think that there's ways in which the situation could be less bad?
0: If you look at Yemen, you will have to be depressed. I knew Yemen before the civil war and Yemen was a place in which I could travel all over the country as a stranger, as a Iraqi, protected by this traditional tribal kind of uh, affiliation. One tribesman can escort you through the lands of multiple tribes. Because we think about Yemen, it's a place where every man carries a gun or two, and we think it must be violent. It wasn't. There were rules of engagement. Very clear, you cannot attack your enemy if your enemy has a guest with him. You cannot do this. So they're very intricate tribal mechanism to solve conflict. Now, what does a civil war do? A civil war destroys these layers of civility, let's call it. The tribal code is destroyed because the gunman becomes the ruler. So traditional forms of mediation collapse to the benefit of the gunmen and the warlords. That leads into fractured society so the Yemen that I travelled in a couple of years ago is definitely not the Yemen that I used to travel through uh, a decade ago you lose these kind of layers of protection as a civilian, as a journalist as an outsider so I'm very depressed and and I think if we don't actually look at the real causes of the, the conflict in Yemen if we still try to talk about the conflict in terms of Houthis on one side, legitimate government on the other side this process will take, I don't know, probably a decade to come.
1: You talk about depressing situations. You've spent quite a bit of time this year in Afghanistan, as I understand it. What feeling were you left with when you came out of the country from those trips?
0: V- again, very depressing because I talk to young people, female journalists, teachers, army officers, a generation that grew up in Afghanistan in the past 20 years and they see the country is gone, the country they, as they knew it is gone on the other hand, for the first time in 43 years there is no civil war, so there is an, a fantastic opportunity to actually talk to the Taliban yes, you may have any objections to the Taliban rule to the Taliban attitude to women and schools and whatnot, but the fact is there is no war for 43 years You know, the civil war started before the Soviets came to Afghanistan in 1978 and continued after they came and continued after the Americans left. And at the moment now, there is peace. I traveled across Afghanistan and and the roads were safe. Why? Because the Taliban are now ruling the street. Now, that's the moment when the international community or local mediators can open channels of, of conversation with the Taliban. You can, of course, shun the Taliban and you say, unless you do one, two, three, four, we're not going to talk to you. What help does that do to the Afghan people? There is one very important thing that's happening now in, Af- in Afghanistan, which is 97 or 92% of the population is under the poverty line. This is a huge thing because the Americans have frozen the assets of the Afghan Central Bank. International community is not giving aid. You need to talk to the Taliban so that you can ease the suffering of the Afghans.
1: Do you think that Western countries, to generalize, have been too idealistic or too conditional about their engagement with the Taliban to say, we'll only talk to you or engage with you if you'll do X, Y, and Z?
0: Well, I mean, Western countries were defeated by the Taliban. This is the reality. They tried to invade the country for 20 years, tens of thousands of Afghans. Taliban, civilians, soldiers died in this war, as well as thousands of foreign soldiers. So the country was brutalized by a war and by an occupation, and the West lost, and they and they left. So what next can they do to bomb Afghanistan again, bomb the Taliban again? This is the reality. These is the de facto rulers of the country who have managed to exploit the Western disorientation and achieve a victory. Now... The ultimate thing is to ease the suffering of the Afghan people. And how can you do that without talking to the de facto rulers of the country, which is the Taliban? You know, you need to pay salaries for teachers, for doctors, for engineers. That is a middle class that is really suffering now because of these sanctions imposed on the Taliban themselves. The Taliban are used to hardship. They've been living in the mountains for 20 years. They don't care if you don't give them salaries. They don't have salaries. It's the people of Afghanistan, the government employees who are suffering.
1: You spent quite a bit of time, just from the article that I read that you last wrote in The Guardian, just sitting there and listening to, I think this was a Taliban leader in mazar sharif in, in the north of the country. Let's say you were on the part of um, a Western government official, and you wanted to kind of start that discussion that you're recommending with the Taliban and in the hope that it can help the Afghan people themselves. How would you suggest those officials go about that kind of conversation based on what you were kind of understood of the mentality and priorities of the Taliban leaders you spoke to? The
0: ultimate thing is to listen. So I personally, I would sit in front of this commander and I wanted to understand, how did this commander end up sitting in mazar sharif a city that traditionally has opposed the Taliban, a city that defeated the Taliban twice before? How come the Taliban managed to conquer the city so easily? So I would like to start from basically day one of his life as a fighter. And it's always his life, because it's always a man who's been fighting there. And, and, and we start with this story. Tell me your story. How did you become a fighter? And of course, his story is a story of defeat, of going to Pakistan, of coming back, of exploiting the anger that the average Afghans were feeling towards a very corrupt government led by some warlords in in Mazar-e-Sharif who exploited the city, who siphoned all the kind of aid money. That created anger in the street, And the Taliban came and harnessed that anger and build a narrative of national resistance. And this is how they managed to win in areas that were historically opposed to the Taliban. So I would start from that point. Unless you understand how did they manage to achieve
1: that victory or that success
0: or whatever, then you can build on it and lead to a process of negotiations. And
1: And your own personal story, Keith, of how you ended up doing this kind of work, that you had the passion for this, where did it begin?
0: Well, it began on the day the statue fell in Baghdad, statue of Saddam. In 2003, I was in my home. I was an architect at that time. And my neighbor tells me the Americans are down the street. And you see the Americans. You see tanks, American tanks in your street. And, and as much as I can talk about it, I'm still shocked by that image of an alien army in big armored vehicles wearing these helmets and flag jackets and pointing guns at you. And they start marching down your street. And I think that's the day when I thought, I can't be an architect anymore. I can't just sit behind a desk and the country is really going through this upheaval. So I started journalism at that time and I was a translator first. The first negotiations of my life to convince the Americans who are manning checkpoints to allow me as Iraqi to go into Saddam's palace because I wanted to see how that dictator who had ruled our life lived. If I go to the to the supreme commander, the colonel of the American forces there, and I say, "Hey, I want to go to the Saddam palace," you will not achieve that success. Yes. <laughs> you have to talk to the soldier on the ground who is manning the checkpoint. will wave you in and just yeah, go on.
1: And how do you think you're seen when you travel to? Yemen or Afghanistan, and having had that personal experience and if you were motivated by that sense of injustice of what you saw, do you think that that brings a certain perspective to your journalism?
0: I think after 20 years, I don't judge anymore. So I know this person sitting in front of me, be it a soldier, be it an army officer, a militia commander, I know that this person did commit serious crimes, atrocities, and I've witnessed some of them. I've been told about others. But I can't sit and judge that person and say, shame on you. How did you do that? It's better for me to try to understand why would a person kill another person? Why would a person turn a city or a street into a pile of rubble? That is the most important thing. There was a point in earlier in my journalism where I go and I point my finger and <laughs> here you are. Come tell me your story. Shame on you. Why did you do that? And then it took me a long process of coming to understand, you can do this. You have to sit, crouch on the floor, and listen, and ask questions, and let the questions flow into a story.
1: Do you think the mediators that you've seen understand that need enough to sit and crouch and listen?
0: I hope some of them do. I mean, I hope they're not all wearing suits and they go there. Look, there is another problem there, which is, as an international community, UN and others, there is this security bubble that is created in terms of blast walls, green zones, and that will separate you from the real people on the ground. So, I mean, of course, security is very important, but as long as you are a, an international mediator and you're traveling an armored convoy with lots of you know private security and glass, you know, wrap around glasses and guns, instantly there is a wall separating you from the people on the ground. So I don't know how you can solve this, but it's really essential to kind of shed away some of that security bubble to go and actually talk
1: to the people on the ground. On that note, hey, thank you so much for being my guest in the Mediator Studio. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And that's it for this edition of the Mediator Studio. To get more episodes as they come out, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also drop me a message on Twitter at AdamTalksPeace. The Mediator Studio is an Oslo Forum podcast brought to you by the Centre for Humanitarian Dialogue and the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Our managing editor is Christina Buchhold, the series editor is Evie Krasner, and the producer is Chris Gunnis. Big thanks also to the production teams in Geneva and Oslo. I hope you'll be with me for the next edition. Until then, this is Adam Cooper. Thanks for listening.